Welcome to Museum Archipelago. I'm Ian Elsner. Museum Archipelago guides you through the rocky landscape of museums. Each episode is never longer than 15 minutes. So let's get started. Every time an Apollo astronaut said the word Houston, they were referring not just to a city, but a specific room inside that city. Mission control. In that room, NASA engineers, average age 26, answered radio calls from the darkness of space. Sitting in front of rows of green consoles, cigarettes and cigars in hand, they guided humans to the moon and back, channeling the efforts of the thousands and thousands of people who worked on that program through one room. I realized the value of this room to American history and to the world history. It's one of the most significant places on Earth. But up until a few years ago, that room was kind of a mess. It was open to anyone who could get into the building. You could actually go into that room, you could sit at the chairs, you could dial the phones, press the buttons. They would have the co-ops come in their first day and they could have coffee and breakfast at the consoles. The Department of Defense used to have their retirement celebrations in there. So it was looking pretty ragged when we first started restoring it. This is Sandra Tetley, Historic Preservation Officer at the Johnson Space Center. Uh, Hi, my name is Sandra Tetley. I am the Historic Preservation Officer and Real Property Officer at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. Tetley and her team at the Johnson Space Center, or JSC, just completed a restoration of the Apollo Mission Control Center, also known as MOCR2, or, because space programs are built on acronyms, simply MOCR. So putting aside the room being used for retirement parties and breakfasts, the real challenge of the restoration was simply the fact that history keeps going. MOCR2 served as mission control before and after the Apollo missions to the moon. So it started out with Gemini. It flew all the manned Apollo missions. Then it did the Apollo-Soyuz test project, Skylab, and then began into shuttle. And we actually lost the shuttle Challenger out of this same room. So if the goal is to restore the room, how do you know what is the most significant mission? How do you know which era to restore it to? Well, in this case, it's clearly Apollo. Sometimes history is messy and its layers overlap, but here it's pretty clear. And this is a widely held view. In 1985, the room became a National Historic Landmark, or NHL, specifically because of its role in Apollo. So the building is a National Historic Landmark based on the Man in Space Survey, which was a survey done of all the NASA centers. When the building was designated that, they have a period of performance, which was from Apollo 11 and then through Apollo 17, which is your when men landed on the moon, you know, of course, except for 13. But that was the period of significance of the room, meaning that in this designation of an NHL, this is what the big focus would have been about. By 1992, the room was no longer being used for any missions. And this gave way to the era of retirement parties and breakfasts. That's where the Texas Historic Commission stepped in and and they really fought to keep that room from being completely gutted and modernized. You know, we we were in the throes of shuttle and space station. And so we did not have the budget or, you know, really the interest to do an actual restoration of that room. And because it was a National Historic Landmark, uh, what happened is the Texas State Historic Commission made an agreement with NASA and with JSC to leave that room alone and to 
basically preserve it or restore it for posterity because that is where we landed man on the moon. The renovation really got underway around 2014 when Tetley started applying for grants with the National Park Service. The interest was there, but it wasn't obvious what the next steps were. We began to try to get buy-in and support to do the restoration And there's a lot of consternation because that room is so visible and it is so important. Various organizations on site wanted to control it and they wanted to control the restoration. So there was a big battle on who would do that and how it would work and how it would go. Tetley pushed for a restoration rather than a simple renovation. Gene Krantz, who served as chief flight director of the Apollo missions, decided to leverage the upcoming 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 to get it done right. Only after Mr. Krantz wrote what I call his nuclear letter and got the, an article in the newspaper, the Houston Chronicle, and he wrote the Park Service, the, the Advisory Council, both our senator, the NASA administrator, I mean, everyone got a letter saying, it is time to restore this room, you're running out of time. It needs to be ready for the 50th anniversary. And that finally got everybody kind of on, you know, off dead center to get going. That's when the restoration really started to take shape. During the missions, the room featured a visitor's gallery behind it. The idea was that media and family could watch what was going on without disturbing the engineers on the floor. Since they were making life and death decisions, the engineers couldn't be interrupted. Today, that same visitor's gallery serves the same purpose, to keep visitors off the floor. And that was one of our, the biggest battles that we had was to begin to lock it down and prevent people from going to the consoles and going into the room. And that is, that continues to be our biggest battle is to keep a limited number of people off the floor of of the moker. This is not a unique problem to human heritage on Earth. And once we create a museum at the Apollo 11 landing site on the moon, it won't be a unique problem to human heritage off of the Earth either. There's only so many people who can visit the cave before the cave paintings are ruined. Now that it's restored, the best vantage point is from the viewing room because all the consoles are lit up and there's furnishings and documents and so forth all over the consoles. That's the best view because no no one goes into the console area at all except the retired flight controllers. The restored room looks exactly like it did in 1969. As visitors enter the gallery above, the room comes alive in a 14-minute experience that portrays five different parts of the Apollo 11 mission with historical accuracy. The descent and landing, the first step, the reading of the plaque on the lunar module, President Nixon calling the astronauts, and finally, the recovery after splashdown. The lights on the consoles, the projected graphs and maps, the buttons, and even the clocks change to display how they would have been at those exact moments. Space Center Houston, who's our visitor experience, wanted more of a Disney-esque type experience where you heard the, the chatter about the moon landing, but that you saw a computer-generated imagery on the screen of the limb landing on the moon. And what what our you know, the restoration is is that you try to make it be historically accurate. And that wasn't historically accurate. They never had any film or any imagery of them landing on the moon until they returned. So the only thing that was showing on the screen was data, whatever was showing from a console they would project up there. They showed the map where they were expected to land, you know, the the lunar map and and information like that, that they were making these decisions on. So We had to go through all the film that was ever filmed in Mission Control. 
we had to go through all that. And then we had to recreate every single thing that was on all five of the summary display screens and all the clocks and then sync it all up to the actual audio. What I like about this approach is that it lets the drama of the historical events play out because there was a lot of drama in the room itself. Having the real-time information come through maps and numbers and the astronauts' own voices, particularly as a decision-maker, is an incredibly intense experience on its own. No fancy animation required. We wanted people to, to really understand what the flight controllers were doing and what decisions they were having to make. Oh, you hear backroom loops of people saying, we've got you know another 1201 alarm. No, keep going, keep going. You're hearing these decisions and you can feel the stress and the, the, that what they're having to do. And then even when they land, you continue to hear, okay, we've got to stay and no stay, you know, and, and then they begin to make that. And so it's very intense. And that is what we want to portray people. We want them to understand that these men whose average age was 26 years old, we're having to make these these real-time decisions based on this these numbers. And if you look at the screens on the consoles, they're crazy. I don't know how anyone can make heads or tails out of them. And they're having to sit there and make these decisions for these men's lives. And, you know, what will happen? And, and what do I do? And how do I do this? And, and they, you know, they did it. And that's what we really want people to, to get in there and just go, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. I can't, I don't, you know. This is great. And I think it really comes across, you know, very well. When you visit Independence Hall in Philadelphia, where the U.S. Constitution was signed, you see that the desks in the assembly room are staged with quill pens and spare parchment, as if the signers just had to step out for a moment in the middle of heated debate. The restorers did the same thing here, but instead of quill pens, they studied the binders, cigarettes, ashtrays, and bottles of Coke the engineers had on hand from old film and video archives. When you go into to, and you view the, the moker, everything there is placed for a reason, based on film and still photography. And, and we placed it all there during you know, the mission for the flight controllers. And it is a little bit of a blend of flight controllers. Um, for example, you know, one may drink coffee and we'd have this coffee cup that we may have the RC Cola can there as well. So we didn't try to just isolate it to, to one particular. You know, there were different shifts during that time. And there was also lots of people in the room. There wasn't just the one flight controller. I mean, there was four or five people around each flight controller. So there was stuff everywhere. We have briefcase. We have sports coats that were there, jackets and sack lunches that they brought in and ashtrays. We we realized that it was it just didn't quite get it without cigarettes in the ashtrays. Our ashtrays are, are full of cigarettes and and a funny thing about the ashtrays, we have they have those big amber ashtrays because they're cigar ashtrays. And the reason why they got the big cigar ashtrays is because they smoke so much that they would fill up the smaller ashtrays too fast. The restoration opened on July 20th, 2019, exactly 50 years after the room guided humans to the lunar surface for the first time. In attendance were Gene Krantz and other flight controllers and engineers. This time, though, they didn't have any life or death decisions to make. They could simply enjoy the room. So on the 50th anniversary, the, the flight controller said, we really want to have that room to ourselves. We, we don't want a big crowd. We'd like to take our wives in there, too, because 
they very rarely were able to detect family and their wives on the floor during missions. I mean, that never happened during missions. One of the things the flight controller said is that, you know, when they landed man on the moon, we did not get to celebrate because we, we were worried. We needed to determine, are they going to stay? Are they safe? You know, is everything working correctly? And, and they had to make those decisions, and so they never got to celebrate. So when the 50th anniversary came around, they really celebrated. And we had them all come in, and we showed them all the visitor experience because a lot of them, that was the first time they'd seen it. And then we brought them on the floor, and all of them could just um, go and look at all the consoles. And, and, you know, they told us they told us so much, no, this didn't look like this, you know, and this looked like this. And, oh, my gosh, how did you find my coffee cup? That's just wild, you know, and, you know, and a lot of camaraderie. And then we took their pictures. So we took each flight team's pictures at their console. So we have these really great photographs. A lot of them were very emotional and sort of were able to really relive it and realize what they've done at this point. And so that was very special. That kind of, you know, topped it all off. This has been Museum Archipelago. The best reason to join Club Archipelago is to support the research and work we do here on Museum Archipelago. But Club Archipelago members also get access to a bonus podcast feed, including a museum movie podcast called Archipelago at the Movies. This week, we dissect Season 7, Episode 16 of The Simpsons, an episode called Lisa the Iconoclast. Even though the episode came out in 1996, it feels surprisingly relevant to today's museum landscape, as Lisa discovers that the local historical society is propping up her town's founding myth for the benefit of those in power. Get instant access to this and other great perks by joining Club Archipelago on Patreon. You'll find a full transcript of this episode, as well as show notes and links, at museumarchipelago.com. If this is your first show, subscribe for free in your favorite podcast player. And if this isn't, leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. And next time, bring a friend.